From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Cheryl Durst, the CEO of the International Interior Design Association. A longtime evangelist for the profession, Durst has been at the IIDA for over 20 years. She even got married in a design center. We spoke about the need for a shared language around pricing, how residential designers can break into commercial projects, and the surprising reason why HGTV is a force for good. The next great ideas in style, design, and home. The next business innovations. Your next inspiration. You'll find them all at High Point Market, October 19th through the 23rd, where the next person you meet might be the key to your next success. Get your free pass to High Point Market now at highpointmarket.org and get ready for what's next. Part fabric, part magic. Krypton exists to make your world smart and beautiful. With earth-friendly spill, odor, and stain protection, fabric intelligence is all they do. You'll find Krypton in over 80 High Point Market showrooms. Join Krypton and brand partners like Airbnb for exclusive market treats, events, and experiences, including the roving Krypton ice cream cart, the SoCal Social at Norwalk, and designer favorites the Krypton Patio, Universal Beauty Lounge, and pooch pop-ups. Reserve your place now at krypton.com slash hpmkt. And now, on with the show. You come at the world as sort of an almost evangelical force, right? About design. Design and is religion. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I mean, and I, and I think that that's such a powerful message. And, and as you say, sometimes people today struggle to find the, the language right. uh, or, or, or to understand the impact that design, with, without them realizing, is, is having on their lives every, every day. Right. That's that age-old notion that design is somehow not woven into the fabric of our everyday lives. That design is this separate and distinct thing. Um, I think increasingly people, the public, consumers, uh, realize that design is all around them. Um, but I think for so many years, decades, centuries, uh, people regarded design as a luxury and not a necessity. And so all the conversations we're having about wellness and well-being and sustainability and comfort and co-working, you name it, those are design conversations. Um, and I just think people have talked about design for so many years, but haven't realized it. And kind of my personal mission is um, for designers to realize their value and import in supporting the human experience and for people who aren't designers to understand what an integral part design plays in everyday life. Exactly. And to, and to recognize all of the thought and planning and creativity and talent that goes into creating experiences that, as you were saying, we just sort of take for granted, don't right. don't recognize right. that we're experiencing someone's design, someone's thought, right. someone's effort. Right. right, design is about thinking. I mean, that's a perfect example. And I think so many people don't realize um, that design is very cerebral. It starts with a thought. It starts with someone asking the question, why? And again, I think it's that notion that most people believe that you know design is an aesthetic pursuit they see the outcome they see the end result but not the strategy and the deep thinking um, that everything about design begins with thinking mm. 
So let's explain for people what the IIDA is, first of all, and, and then we can sort of talk about the, the various ways that you spread the word and, sure. the, and the gospel of design. Sure. IIDA is the International Interior Design Association. We're headquartered in Chicago. We've got about 16,000 members uh, who are practicing design in 58 countries. And our members are primarily working in, um, I think, what is commonly called the commercial environment, but doing everything um, from hotels to hospitals to airports to restaurants, um, kind of you name it, mm -hmm. and IIDA members are out there practicing it. Right. And and you've been there for I've been there time. for 20 plus years. <laughs> yes. It's the longest job I've ever had. Yes. And and it, so it, it's the it, the 25th year? 25th anniversary okay. of IIDA. We were created in 1994 as a, actually a merger of three other design organizations came together. Um, and then I joined the IIDA team as the director of education uh, in about 1997. Okay. And, and quickly they recognized your talents and abilities and... Something like something that. Something like that, <laughs> I believe. Something like that. They said, we really need your help, Cheryl. <laughs> Things things aren't as good as we would want them to, to Thing, be. Things were a bit awry mm -hmm. on a shaky financial structure. So the board did some digging and delving and discovered that the association was actually uh, well over a million dollars in debt. That was unknown. They didn't uh, know that. Did not know that. Um, it's not something in the not-for-profit world with associations. It is not anything that happens overnight. It's mm. over a period of time, I can fairly say, a little bit of benign neglect, maybe, mm -hmm. um, because it was the early years of the association. Um, what was paid attention to was look and feel and brand and image and taking care of members. The financial side was neglected. And um, so I was director of education, the board came to me, and my predecessor had moved on. And the board came to me and said, hey, Cheryl, would you like to be CEO? At the time, there was a little bit of cognizance of this problem. Um, I was eight months pregnant with my second child okay. at that time. and So I, you seem like the perfect candidate yeah, to, to take well, all this on. What else did you have going on? So clearly really? some hormone surge made yeah. me say yes. Sure. And I think IIDA still owes me about eight weeks of maternity leave. Um, yeah, but. I, hope they, I hope they plan <laughs> to give it to you. Um, but And said child is now in his third year at RISD, so we're all doing fine. Oh, that's great. But um, I discovered the level of um, the damage and had to immediately set about fixing it. Mm. And I think the first thing for me, I took it on as an obligation because I was acutely aware that if IIDA fell apart, collapsed, <clears throat> the first message wouldn't be, oh, no, this association is in free fall, but it seemed to me that it would reinforce this notion that a design organization and therefore designers don't know how to manage their own business. Mm. And right, we hear that all the time, sure. that designers aren't business people. And I thought that the collapse of a design organization would reinforce that. To send a terrible message. It's absolutely terrible yeah. message. And so um, with a wonderful team, the board, some financial advisors, we worked like hell to turn the association around. And so we affected an 18-month turnaround. Uh, we lost 20% of our members, uh, but we certainly were able to recruit. Be and because of the changes that you made? So what did you have to do? Did you have well, to raise I, membership fees? We and that did. Sort of thing? We okay. did. And I think it was just the sheer embarrassment of how 
dare you, this organization is falling apart. And so many of the members had been invested in the predecessor organization. So IBD, the Institute of Business Designers, and ISID, uh, the International Society of Interior Design, and CFID, the Council of Federal Interior Designers. All those folks who had come together to create IIDA, who had a sense of pride about it. And then it was kind of this financial mess. I want nothing to do with this. So there was that kind of cohort of folks. Hmm. But then also we had to go back out with a retroactive dues increase. So with the statement of, you've already paid us dues once. Hey, guess what? We've got this horrible problem. We need to come back out to you and ask for more money. And it pissed them off, right? Surely so. Sure. Um, But the folks that hung in there um, helped affect this change and many of the people that left eventually did come back to the organization. So it was hard. And it was in the pre-internet days. Yeah. I can't imagine what it would be like going through that situation now with social media. Um, I had to, though, write letters to the membership and send out a personal personal letter from Cheryl. Hey, here's the deal. Hang with us. But um, i very proud of the fact that we were transparent about mm. the whole situation. So it's kind of, here's what happened, and here's how we're going to fix it. And I promise you we'll have a bigger and better and brighter future as IIDA if you stay with us. And we owed about 700 vendors as a business entity, the association. We owed about 700 vendors money. Um my predecessors had kind of neglected to pay bills and all kinds of things like that. For quite a while, For it seems. Quite I mean, a while. To be owing a million dollars. And um, so I called every single one of those folks that IIDA owed money to. And the lesson that I learned about that, and I, it still stays with me to this day, um, be upfront, explain the situation, no bullshit. Mm. I called every single one of them and said, here's the situation with IIDA and we will pay you back, but I need terms. And out of those 729 vendors, only one charged us interest. And I had terms with all of them and we paid back all the money that we owed them over time. And they all came along. And they with all you came along over time. What is the the message today that you're most sort of putting forth about what the organization is is, is trying to do, and 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 what your sort of personal mission is? I think it's this message around design, as I mentioned earlier, is a social force and it's an economic force, and just the coherency of design. Um, I'm a firm believer in. Design um, is about what happens on the receiving end. Many times we focus on, it's this whole conversation around what's commercial and what's residential. I think we spend a lot of time focusing um, on typology and the thing, the Mm. object, the physical environment that's created, but ultimately design is about the people who experience that space. And so we're spending a lot of time at IIDA talking about Uh, the receiving end of design, about the experience. We have a book series, uh, our What Clients Want book series, Mm. and the latest iteration iteration of that book series um, is Workplace. And how what we think of as the notion of work has changed in 50 years. And the places where work happens um, obviously has has changed in a half a century as well. Well, it's interesting because we talk a lot to to residential designers at, at Business of Home, and 
so much of what we're hearing today, and, and, and so I'm wondering what's, what's similar in the, in the commercial world, so much of what we're hearing today are the challenges of, of, of working with clients today who either don't appreciate or value enough of, of what the designer brings to the, to the table, uh, with their skills and talents and knowledge, uh, and that so many of them feel as if they're being seen more as simply a purchasing agent mm. or, or a, a means to, to getting product mm-hmm. uh, versus sort of transforming someone's life with a designer's ability to, to create a, a space and, a, and an environment. And I'm wondering if, if that's uh, similar to, to what's going on in the, in the commercial space for designers. Very today. much so. I think... Um you know, the irony of design is that, yes, it, it is solving for most clients a very immediate problem. And so in the mind of the client, it's kind of one and done. And so that doesn't help us in this um, in this long road in helping people understand that design is much longer term. But it starts with um, constantly educating your client mm. um, about what design has the power to do. Um, we talk about that fact that designers need to be lifelong learners, um, they also need to be lifelong educators. And so every client, every conversation with every client um, is educating them about the value of what design can ultimately do um, for their lives. You, you travel a great deal mm-hmm. and, you're, and you're talking with all sorts of different entities. Where are you finding places where the education about the appreciation of the value of design is, is, is happening. Because one of the things that, and, and again, particularly in this, um, this high-end home world, right, where uh, fabric companies and, and very customized furniture and, and companies are, are worried that they might not exist much longer right. if there isn't this new group coming along that, that appreciates what they, what they have to offer, right? right? right. People have to be educated right. about that. Right. Where are you finding that education is going on? How are people getting informed about So design? I think that people are getting informed by retailers. I mean, from a very kind of consumerist standpoint, you see... Uh, companies and manufacturers like Knoll, like Herman Miller, like Kravit, like hmm. um, you name the company, they are all doing their part to provide um, more than just pretty photos about design. Um, so design is happening in the pages of our favorite shelter magazines. If you look at ads, it's more than just about beauty. It's about functionality. I think some of that has come with this idea that uh, customers want their manufacturers that they're working with to be more transparent. And so it's about material transparency. What's in, what's in that carpet what are the components of that carpet that I just purchased what's what are the components of textiles that I want to specify for my home is it safe um, people are more concerned about in a really good way um, the composition of the materials that they are bringing into their home or their office and so companies are becoming more transparent obviously about that and using very simple means in advertising mm-hmm. I certainly see it in a lot of showrooms um, you know once upon a time the design center 
centers of the world, whether it was the Merchandise Mart in Chicago or the D&D building, um, would do these very elaborate seminars for consumers. Well, people just don't have time for that anymore. And so kind of finding ways, um, so whether it's advertising or really smart, informed salespeople. Yeah. Well, and you, and you mentioned this issue of transparency, which is an issue that comes up a great deal. Yes. Right. In our, yes. In our world yes. today on, on so many levels. So, so Pricing transparency. It, it, How it, exactly. do you charge for your services? Right. And we have this, you know, we have a much savvier consumer, um, I know, particularly on the residential side. And so they are asking informed questions about pricing structure. Um, where are you obtaining my product? What are you being charged for it? And then how are you passing that charge on to me? And designers just have to be ready to be prepared and coherent and honest about how they're charging. Well, and and what are you discovering as you both do research and just have sort of anecdotal conversations with designers all the all the time about sort of where is all of that going? Do you see some sort of standardization of, of people's pricing models or do you, I mean, it's a, it's a big topic of conversation in yeah. the residential design world. So I think if um, consumers had a better understanding, and again, to me, that comes back, I'm a lover of words and a lover of language. And I think if it comes back to a common lexicon. And so if a designer is saying to their client, this will be cost plus, um, there should be some kind of standard that if I'm working with you now, Mm. but 10 years from now I'm working with with someone else, another designer, that that cost plus has the same meaning over time and from designer to designer. I can't think of a harder thing uh, than to come up with a uniform scope of services or standardized charging. But I think it starts with just a common vocabulary, a common Mm. lexicon, so that clients have a clear understanding, maybe not always of what you're charging, but how you are charging. Maybe we start there. So, and uh, is that something that can be learned from the commercial world? Does the commercial world sort of handle this better or more efficiently? Um, or, I, I mean- think it has because through the um, RFP and RFQ process. Mm. I think because um, uh, because of working with the government, so through the government procurement process, um, there is a, a standardized process. So I think there can be some exchange of information that might be helpful um, for sole practitioners and residential designers. I've certainly seen any number of residential firms that are large residential firms that um, behave very sim- similarly to large commercial firms as well. I think where it's happening are those uh, small firms and those solo practitioners um, because design just doesn't happen in a vacuum anymore. The business of design doesn't happen in a vacuum anymore. Mm. And so maybe for those smaller firms um, to have a connection to larger firms or being a part of an organization like ASID or IIDA is helpful from that aspect. Mm. Do you do you partner in any way with the ASID, for we example? We do. We okay. do. We are particularly um, engaged in this arena of um, the rights of designers to practice. You know that design is legislated um, on mm. a state by state basis, and so my. Uh, 
advocacy and government affairs team works very closely with the ASID team. Um, so we are at state houses together. We are, you know, kind of defending the right to practice um, along with ASID because, quite frankly, legislators don't care what organization you belong to. Mm. Um, you know, legislators are talking in larger terms about deregulation um, or sales tax, those issues that are related to, you know, kind of all of us and not just any one particular type of design. And and is there anything going on there that we should be aware of or, or things that Ooh, are changing? Um, I mean, that would take another hour. Okay. <laughs> That's a whole other. Uh, that's a whole other okay. podcast. Okay. Um, but that is, you know, the conversations. There are so many in so many states. Um, design is not regarded as a profession, and so this arena of occupational licensing. And so we have some states where hair braiders and dog walkers are regulated, but designers are not regulated. Where hair braiders are regarded as a profession, but interior Correct. designers are not. Correct. Correct. Really? The people who do your nails, estheticians, okay. are, regulated are regulated because it is believed that they affect the health, safety, and welfare of the public. And traditionally and historically, um, there are many who believe that interior designers do not affect the health, safety, and welfare of the public. And clearly, um, at IIDA and ASID, we argue exactly the opposite. We know that you know design is incumbent right the health and safety of the public is incumbent on Paramount. design so the fact that we have to explain this on a state-by-state -state basis and so many states are preventing designers from becoming licensed um we want to be licensed let's we call out some of those states what are some of the what are some of the states that are trying to hold designers well, back design is only regulated in 27 states and so just a little over half. And some of it has to do with population, right? There are not large populations of interior designers in North Dakota and mm. South Dakota. Oh, I knew the Dakotas were a problem. <laughs> you didn't need to tell me Montana. that. Montana. Um, but once a state has regulation, it also is the fact that we're fighting to keep it. And so it's a continuing battle, and there are there are some amazing people out on the front lines. Um, but again, it's having this conversation with with regulators um, and legislators around the importance of design. And of course, the first thing that they see um, is that it's um, that designers are dilettantes and not practitioners. Uh, many people don't regard interior design as a real profession. And so again, that becomes a teachable moment. Mm. We have to have this conversation about what design means and what it really is. Um, it is a real profession. It does impact human beings um, on a, on a incredible level and so the key word is impact yeah and so we use that a lot in talking to legislators um, and we make them think about places like hospitals that's the thing when many of these legislators think about design the first place that they think about is not a hospital not a school not an airport and so we sometimes have to help people reorient their thinking um, about where design happens so the idea that they have in their head is is, is what uh, some homemaker I think it's the kind of Throw pillows? Old I mean, school decorator, sort of yes. If yeah. I had a dime for every time I heard the term pillow fluffer, uh, right. Okay. Okay. So that's really the image that we're still fighting yes. against yes. and that your people are out on the front lines. Out on the front lines. To... Yeah. Dennis, for me, it's interesting because I know that in the past, um, many times there's been this denigrating of design and sometimes we do it ourselves and I sometimes hear commercial designers 
talk about residential design and say very clearly, I'm not that. Mm. We're all we're all we're all, that. We're all sure. designers. Yes. And we all we may practice it differently, we may specialize differently, but at the end of the day, we are thinking, crafting, creating place for human beings mm. to exist. And whether that place is a home or whether that place is an office or whether that place is a co-working place or an airport, it doesn't matter. We're invested in creating a place to maximize human potential. Mm. It's, it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was so many residential designers talk about wanting to make that leap. Make that leap, right? yeah, absolutely. To, to, to design a hotel or a restaurant. Uh, in, in fact, we recently had a, uh, one of our columnists, Sean Lowe, a designer, wrote in and said, how do I better present myself as somebody who can take on that kind of work? What mm -hmm. do I have to demonstrate? Who do I have to be in their eyes to say that, of course, I can design your restaurant or your hotel space? I mean, what what is it the residential world needs to needs to do. It's interesting now we're in this moment where clients, end users, um, absolutely they're hiring for skill and talent and competency. But just like everyone out there, um, they're hiring their employees for fit, um, clients are hiring for fit as well. And so I recently had a conversation with a restaurant group in Chicago, an owner developer for a restaurant group. And what he was looking for um, from his design team wasn't necessarily, he wasn't saying I'm going to go to the largest design firm out there. Um, I actually want a smaller, more nimble, more agile group. And hey, Cheryl, do you know anybody who has done a resort or a vacation home? Because that's the feel that I'm looking for. And I think that residential designers who are wanting to quote unquote make that leap um, need to look obviously at the scope and scale of those projects out there um, but start paying attention to those folks that are crafting the space um, who they are as a brand because there may actually be more affinity and a better fit for a residential designer in an arena that has you know historically been reserved for a commercial design firm but it's it's about the people that are commissioning the business mm. and so I think the ability to position yourselves um, not just from talent and skill and competency, but how you might fit as a design team. Um, so that means working on your presentation. That means understanding the DNA of the client, no different than what residentials are doing sure. now. Um, but clearly the competency and skill is there. Um, I don't think there's a problem with presenting yourself as a small shop, um, but a small shop of professionals is really important. Our inaugural Future of Home conference was a huge success. If you missed it, you still have an opportunity to explore one of our industry's transformative ideas, subscription furniture, at High Point Market. Get your free pass today at highpointmarket.org and join me, Dennis Scully, for a conversation with Gavin Steinberg and Megan Hopp of Everest, Saturday, October 19th, at The Point on Commerce. I'll see you there. You'll find Krypton's fabric intelligence in over 80 High Point Market showrooms. Krypton's exclusive fall market treats, events, and experiences include a high point first, designing spaces for hosting with Airbnb. And don't miss the roving Krypton ice cream cart, SoCal Social at Norwalk, 
and designer favorites the Krypton Patio, Universal Beauty Lounge, and Pooch Pop-Ups. Reserve your place now at krypton.com slash hpmkt. And now, back to the show. You mentioned earlier about the Merchandise Mart. So mm-hmm. you're, you're in Chicago. And the Merchandise Mart was such a central meeting place for for the design community writ, writ large. Right. So whether you're on the commercial side or the residential side, everybody was coming in and out of, of the Merchandise right. Mart, right? right. For, for, for years. I feel as if that's changed. And you, you mentioned people not having time. But also, uh, there are other changes that have taken place. Um, absolutely. So IIDA was a tenant of the Mart um, since its early beginnings. Um, one of the predecessor organizations was headquartered there. Three years ago, IIDA, we moved out of the Merchandise Mart. We're now um, on Wacker Drive in Michigan in kind of a classic Mies building. Um, but certainly other tenants over time have relocated and... It's nothing to do with the Mart. I think it's a general movement, particularly in the U.S. In traveling, I've certainly noticed the proliferation of design districts. Um, So as opposed to one large physical space that houses showrooms, um, showrooms are now happening in neighborhoods Mm -hmm. along, you know, along certain streets and areas. Um, I tie that back to that transparency Um, you know, Places are storefront now, and they're open to the public. Um, I kind of grew up, I started my career in the Washington Design Center, zoned by the Merchandise Mart, right? And it was to the trade only, and Mm. there were, you know, there was security to check your pass and your business license and kind of all the things. Absolutely. that world has changed. And so, you know, that this notion that we have to go to a place to be a consumer of design and that place isn't necessarily in the, you know, kind of normal vein of places that I traffic. You mm. look now, a lot of these design districts are, you know, they're just in the mode of life. Um, so I, I think it's a cultural shift um, I think it makes it hard for a lot of designers. I certainly hear a lot of designers who want to be able to take their clients to one place yes. and see multiple showrooms. It's it's you know putting the onus, the burden on the designers to maybe traffic a little bit, but it is allowing those businesses to open their doors. Um, many of them are selling directly to the public, to consumers, and um, right, the business has just changed. Well, and is that a trend that you think is inevitably going to take place? It's hold? access, absolutely. Okay, it's, so it's access. eventually everyone's going to open their, their doors. Right. E- even the D&D building here in New York or, or all these other design centers around the corner. The Washington Design Center turned into something else. But it is the Museum of the Bible. the Museum of the Bible, yes. <laughs> uh, a much better use of that space, I think. I can't believe the Bible didn't have a museum. Already, uh, the Bible needed a museum. Right, absolutely. And they, act- did a, they did a fantastic job with that museum. I joke, but it is actually... I actually, 25 years ago, I met my husband. Um, he was also an, uh, employed by the Washington Design Center, and we got married in the Washington Design Center. Really? And I remember my parents were like, oh my goodness, you're not getting married on, you know, sanctified holy ground. And... Now it's a Bible museum, now so I feel absolutely justified. Yes, it was totally appropriate. <laughs> it was completely appropriate. Yes. Didn't matter that it sat on top of a subway that, station. That is so fantastic. <laughs> you are so devoted to this industry that you got, <laughs> that married, got married in a design center. I mean, really. You, you've just given your life. You've just given your life there you go. to this industry. You've talked about diversity, and that's another topic that, yes. right, that yep. everyone wants to sort of talk about and, and uh, try and figure out 
what that means to today and and how do we sort of navigate right change right and i think we're all struggling with it right and it's not just the readily apparent diversity right race gender mm. um sexual orientation it's diversity of thought diversity of discipline you know we've talked about residential and commercial and d- diversity within the typologies um but from the from the kind of obvious race and gender, we know that people of color are woefully underrepresented underrepresented in the profession of design. To be sure. Yeah. And uh, so why? And some of that ties back to kind of these earlier notions that um, design is rarefied. It is only for the privileged. Mm. Um, I am gratified, though, as I travel the country and the world, seeing um, more women in architecture, Mm -hmm. more men in interior design, um, and then in the U.S., more people of color increasingly enrolled in design programs. Um, I think that um, for a lot of people, uh, for first generation, uh, for folks who are the first generation in their family, uh, when they come to uh, their parents and say, "I I want a career in design, Typically, they are directed to the more traditional professions, you know, law, dentistry, you know, do anything but that. You're never going to make any money in design. It's, uh, it's not seen as a profession where you can actually make a living. So we all need to do a better job of demonstrating that it is a viable career choice. Um, there also is the denigration of careers in art and design. I, I have a son who's a, in his third year at RISD. My daughter is a graduate of Santa Fe University of Art and Design. And I met any number of kids at both of those schools who have told me stories about they've had to emancipate themselves from their parents because their parents aren't willing to pay for a design mm. education. So, but because they don't take that seriously or they don't, they don't value correct, that? They don't value it. Um, why do I want to get myself in debt says those parents. Why do I want to get myself in debt for you to come out with a BFA that won't be worth anything? And so we all need to do a better job mm. of um, talking about the worth and value of a, of a degree uh, in the arts as well. So there's, there's that. Mm. Um, and then one of the, on the positive side, I've certainly seen more people of color coming into careers in design because of exposure to things like HGTV. And I know a lot of designers have a love-hate relationship with HGTV, <laughs> yes. right? They think it's Mostly the- hate from what I hear, but <laughs> yeah. you tell me. But one of the good things yes. that HGTV has done is show design, show the potential of a career in design Mm -hmm. as as viable and money-making. And um, when many young people of color see a designer of color on HGTV, right, for a lot of kids, it's like you have to see it to be it. And so for many people, they have not grown up with design as a part of their lives. They've never met a designer or an architect. Then all of a sudden you see one on television and it becomes more real. And I've talked to any number of students who their first exposure to design was seeing a designer on HGTV and then clicks that, I could do that. Hmm. So it's important, right? Love it or hate it. um, It has resulted in more people being exposed to design as a viable career. So there's still a lot of work to be done. So as much as the public doesn't understand us, even the families of people who practice design don't understand design. I always tell students, if you can explain design to your mother, and she understands what you do and why you do it, that's a great start. 
I feel badly that we have diminished the value of art and art programs in schools and the the thought, and I've had this conversation, yeah. funny enough, a, a very famous interior designer sat at this very table, <laughs> told us the story of him saying he was going to RISD and his parents like, what do you mean? You already know how to do that. Like, no, I'm not going to pay for you to go to design school. And there, there wasn't this notion that that was a real job, yeah. right? Or, yeah. you know, I mean, and some people sit at this table and say, oh, my mom's not happy because I'm not a doctor and I'm right. pursuing this other thing and, and it's an art it's a science and it's a business and I think that makes it harder uh, for all of us to explain what design is um, but I don't want us investing our time in explaining what design isn't right we should always mm. be very proactive um, and so particularly with interior designers I talk about right we always explain who we are not who we aren't and so when a designer starts a sentence with well I'm not an architect then what people have in their heads are, you aren't an architect. Right. Um, start positively. Um, start with an affirmation of who you are and what you do. Um, that helps people understand the import and the dignity and the gravity um, in the meaning of design. How do you decide personally where you invest your your efforts as you think about this mission that you are on it's hard right yeah. um uh in two weeks i'm going to auburn university to speak to a group of students i will always at the drop of a hat i will speak to students um i thrive on their energy i love to know what they're thinking about and where they see their future um, so students are always a priority for me personally mm. and for iida as an organization um, but then also i'm going to speak to a group of neuroscientists and behaviorists about the impact of design on us from a neurological standpoint you know how design changes the brain how mm. we receive design how we see design as we age that goes into a conversation i've started with a group of textile designers about how we experience um, materiality as we age, right? Because we see things, our eyes literally see things, we interpret things differently. Dementia is very much a part of our world. We're all living to be older. We have to experience the environment still, mm -hmm. um, right, as active aging people. So what does that mean for the products that are in our space? And so that's something um, that's also a priority. It is, I try to be a one-woman SWAT team. <laughs> so it and, seems. And tackle all of this because it's all important. Um, I only have so much time on my calendar. Yeah. Um, I, when and where I can speak to people. So whether it's students, whether it's scientists, whether it's end users or consumers, if you saw my calendar, which is in my bag, I think you would... Uh, no, I know how scary it is. I mean, someone in the outer office has been trying to coordinate <laughs> your calendar, yes. and uh, she travel, says it's a complicated gig. I travel 35 weeks out of the year speaking to lots of different people and organizations, and it's just a balance. I try to do an equal amount of what I call external, mm. um, as well as internal. Um, and then, as I said, always supporting um, students. And then I 
talk to the woman sitting in, you know, seat 7B next to me on a United flight, right? right. Because that's right. my, I'm evangelizing one person at a time. <laughs> and so when I'm sitting next to someone on a plane, right, and that question comes up invariably, what do you do? And I say I'm CEO of a design association and I get that that intake and that gasp and you've got the best job in the world and I do um, she's gasping at the fact that I've said design and not that I'm a CEO and so when I see that bright-eyed right. starry-eyed this is someone who is excited by design but she's probably thinking of it in a really traditional way and so I take that moment to talk to her or him um, about what design the impact of design and so I talk about that the plane and that seat and that design is thought about and deliberate and intentional and so you know there are probably people who don't want to sit next to me on a and then then they get up and they leave oh my god I got (laughs) I learned more than I needed to about design but I'm hoping that those folks are impacted and think about the next place that they walk into so many people sit at this table and tell me they're incredibly excited about this time for designers, that the world seems to care more about design mm-hmm. than than ever before. It's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, but to your point, there's there's all of these television shows that seem to want to celebrate design. People want to be able to take great pictures of themselves in their spaces, and so they want their homes to be well designed. The all Instagrammable these... moments, exactly. And... and 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 Instagram has had such an impact oh, on restaurant design and yeah. hotel design, yeah. right? And everything has to be brilliantly photographable, but also has to be incredibly experiential and it has to offer all of these sort of bells and whistles to make you physically show up there versus mm-hmm. some other place that you could you could go but everyone tells me that designers this is their this is their golden age <laughs> uh, do, do, do you feel that way um, I think there's this heightened interest um, but bells and whistles don't give us life right comfort gives us life functionality gives us life efficiency gives us life. And so very often what we see on Instagram, like you were saying, um, it's been orchestrated, it's been staged. Mm. But what we want, what we crave, what makes us real as human beings um, are the surroundings where we are most comfortable. Um, So I think this moment that we're in, as much as I kind of love the heightened you know, bells and whistles. I love this moment of sanctuary and comfort and people retreat to a place that, that makes them feel most at home. And most at home can happen in a hotel. Most at home can happen, believe it or not, in an airport. There's some parts of the new LaGuardia that I'm absolutely amazed at. Like I can actually sit there and get some work done. Um, So I think in as much as we are looking for those Instagrammable moments, you don't live in an Instagrammable moment. You don't work in an Instagrammable moment. Um, We live and work in the places that support who we are as human beings. Mm. And I think that's what's exciting me about design now, right? This whole blur between commercial and residential and retail is borrowing some tips from hospitality and healthcare is thinking about retail and hospitality. So this blur and blending of the specialties and typologies I find particularly exciting. Mm. And at some point in the not too distant future, we're going to need to colonize off this earth. And so I just had a great conversation with a group of behaviorists um, who happen to be at NASA. And they're thinking and talking about how we are going to populate 
on other planets and how we will live and work. And I think that's just absolutely fascinating. I think that's fascinating too. How soon is that going to be happening? Not soon enough. <laughs> uh, I know that's my that's my fear. Well, so and and interestingly to that point. Technology is an area where so many designers are feeling somehow marginalized. Absolutely. Right? That technology is coming Absolutely. to get them. Mm-hmm. That technology is chipping away at what they were expertly doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that technology is somehow learning some of what they do so that it can be easily applied. So artificial intelligence exactly. is very, I mean, that's looming for so many professions. And so this arena of human thought is now no longer reserved to just humans. We have, you know, we have artificial intelligence thinking. Um, but I don't think, I'm going to jump out on a limb here, I don't Please. think that artificial intelligence will ever replace that relationship of designer to client because right now, and I'm hoping in the near future, in the distant future, um, designers still have that unique and intrinsic ability to interpret client needs and wants into the crafting of a physical space or environment. I, I want to have an optimistic message to deliver to designers <laughs> because I, f- I feel that they, they feel under, under siege. Uh, but by so many things, we talked about the challenging clients earlier, right. the, the technology coming along. There's always there's always the generational thing. Oh, the younger oh, designers absolutely. are coming up, right? And and they're just getting famous on Instagram, and they don't have the right. They don't have the chops. Yeah, yes. certainly heard that that conversation. I, I, I'm sure. And and is is design education as valued t- today in in the with the people that you talk to is that a, a prerequisite for for having a meaningful career in definitely design? but i think when design education is amplified by this underpinning or in a program a minor in cultural anthropology in sociology and psychology um what will keep design contemporary um, is its necessity to human beings. And and can you see a time where the design schools themselves will will broaden their curriculum to include all of these elements? That Absolutely. You've just Absolutely. Many um, many private programs uh, and state programs are broadening the curriculum as well. It's it's forcing a lot of schools to think about a five year mm. undergraduate degree in design or a combined. Um, uh, bachelor's and master's program in interior design. Um, we need more teachers. We meet, need more uh, instructors in interior design as well. I'm really fortunate. I've just been elected to the board of trustees for the New York School of Interior Design. Right. And uh, one of the things that I'm going to be talking to them about um, is this curriculum, um, again, that is a broader-based curriculum that is um, uh, broader-based about the different types of design, but also uh, introducing a larger business curriculum there as well. Interesting. So that that is one of their one of their points of focus right now. Having that conversation, okay. and, and certainly, I'm thrilled that other schools are looking at that uh, looking at that as well. Right, the world has changed. Mm. We can't teach design the same way that we've always taught it. The world thinks differently about us. We need to think differently about us as well. It's interesting how many older designers will say to me, oh, they're not teaching it properly in design school, right? And I'm right. sure you hear that all yes, the yes, time. Yes, yes, yes. And, yeah. you know, where has sketching gone? And right. it, it hasn't gone God. away. Um, yeah. But it has been augmented and amplified by other tools that designers need to use. Um, 
design should always have an eye to the future, but design also should never forget its past and its legacy as well. It informs who we are now. Well, the New York School of Interior Design is a is a great institution where I'm going to be spending more of my time in, the, in the coming months. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. And, the, and they're a great group. And I love that they are forward thinking. Yes. And they yes. are looking at how can we broaden our, our curriculum and our, and our thinking and how better can we prepare design students to, to as you've described, to, to enter a, a world where perhaps a lot more is going to be demanded or expected. Right. Of, Old of ways them. don't open new doors. Yeah. And... Um, I think we're all, you know, it doesn't matter what the profession is, but we we are all invested in in the future of what we do. And designers are not going to be replaced by by robots and and by machines. I don't think so. I don't think so. No. I don't think so because you still need that connection to uh, the way a human being thinks, right? And the soul of a building, the soul of a house, the soul of a space. Um, Technology can't yet measure our soul. I don't think it ever will. Um, But design is the true measure of a soul. Design is the true measure of a soul. Okay, well, that is a great place for us to wrap up. You've been so kind to spend time with us. Thank sure. you so Thank much. Thank you. This has, been, this has been great. My guest has been Cheryl Durst, the CEO of the IIDA. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. If you're enjoying these conversations, I hope you'll consider sharing the podcast with a friend or heading over to the iTunes store to leave us a review. It helps others to discover the show. We love your feedback. Please give us your thoughts at podcast at businessofhome.com. Our show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Lauren Pirelli. And I'm Dennis Scully. We'll see you next week.